biographies. And then I started to look back at their lives and compare it to the lives of some of the bombers whose biographies I all started studying. And at the end of the day, this has been going on for decades. I mean, this is how the original people in it were recruited. I mean, ideologically, it goes all the way back to a guy called um, Qutb in Egypt, who described a very radical version in which, you know, engaging in jihad is a fundamental part of religion and looking at non-Muslims as, as a jalilia, which is like sort of worse than animals type thing and you need to overcome them. And they were in similar messes in their own lives when they started writing this stuff up. And that's probably why they know how to find other people in these same junctures. So let's talk about these similar messes that people are in. I mean, what do you wind up seeing as the common vulnerabilities that set up young Muslim youth for recruitment by terrorist recruiters? It starts in the very early years in terms of parenting. You know, with my um, own experience, my parents are from Bangladesh. If I was brought up there like my cousins were, then I wouldn't have been brought up by two parents. I'd have been brought up by an extended family of about eight uncles and aunts. So when my parents came to this country, the idea of having that more one-to-one -one time with your children was not very well known. They were spending their time earning money, combating their own stresses in life in a new country, and not so much of that one-to-one -one emotional intimacy was going on. So it immediately gives you a bit of a vacuum inside. And most of these people have either experienced that kind of immigration phenomenon or their parents happen to be particularly aloof parents. You know? The case of Muhammad Ara, didn't yeah. he have a very sort of hostile, strict father? Mm. Yeah, who timed how long it took for him to walk home from school. And if he was about two or three minutes over that, he would get beaten every day. He had no time to mix with friends or any social life and no emotional intimacy. In fact, people who knew Muhammad Atta said that they never, ever saw him smile. So generally, you have these very cold relationships with the father. So they're left with this vacuum. They then go into the outside world and they become more eager than most people to try to form associations and bonds because you need that now to try and define yourself. That's why I say the recruiters really know when to arrive because that's when they arrive because it tends to happen around adolescence. So that's when they tend to recruit people around that time of their life. So once they've found a cohort of some young boys they perceive as especially vulnerable to their message, what happens next? Are there next stages that are all common? Yeah, the next stage is very much sort of bonding. There's a lot of closeness. I mean, you know, the 7-7 seven, seven bombers in the UK, they had a group called the Muller Crew. Everybody called them the Muller Crew. They used to go around and find young people particularly those who are coming off drugs. They would help them get off the heroin and then take them whitewater rafting. There's photos of these guys all on rafts together, whitewater rafting with people, having a great time. So really bonding. So the next stage is bonding. And then what happens after that is the ideology is drip-fed, drip-fed, till then you're able to pod off, if you like, into your own little cell. Five, three, seven people. When you just start bouncing off each other then into late hours of the night, I call it a sequestration phase. And it happened in uh, the 9-11 bombers in a street called Marienstrasse, where they would spend all their, their day and night. It happened with the 7-7 bombers in a place called the Hamara Youth Center. It happened with the Madrid bombers in a cottage just outside uh, urban Madrid. And these guys, that's when all of their kind of um, almost paranoid energies then come together and build on top of each other. And they form all these really, really far out theories. They then start to make extremist terrorism something that is a norm, something that is worth considering at that point. You know, I, I noticed that in all the commonalities, you didn't say a word about religion. Is that another common factor? Um, it's actually a protective factor. It's actually the opposite. And my own experience when I was um, uh, exposed to this is that out of the half a dozen of us Muslims who were there, the one or two guys who had a proper religious upbringing were not only not interested in pursuing it like me, 
they were actively against it from the beginning. And I remember them even saying to me, yeah, it just hit me as I'm talking to you right now, I remember them even saying to me, you know what, the intelligence services should do something about these guys. This was in 19... 90. It was 11 years before, and those guys, they're the only guys who were religious amongst us, and they said, no, no, there's something very screwed up about this, there's, this is very wrong, and I don't know why MI5 let these guys get away with this stuff. So, in fact, religion acted as a kind of vaccination, because what, yeah. they, they knew what real Islam was, and they said, yes. well, this is some weird perversion. And the people who got radicalized are the ones for whom that was their first experience of religion. And a lot of the de-radicalization work I've done at Cambridge here has been around helping people develop their religious identity early on as an inoculation. Because those of us who weren't that religious in our early years, when these guys were feeding us all this nonsense, we took that as the reality of our religion. You know, that's kind of how it worked, really, is that right? And it kind of put me off generally, but some other guys learnt religion that way, you know.